up to this point, as we've been studying through the letter to the church at Ephesus, and most recently in the second part of chapter 4, Paul has been describing to us how we are to live our lives. He's been giving us some examples, illustrations, things that ought to be characteristic of our lives as Christians. He has told us that we are new creatures, that, that if you are a Christian, you have put off the old and you've put on the new, that you are no longer the person you used to be. Meaning that when you received Christ, the person you were up to that point died with Christ and was buried with him. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, that you as a new creature, a brand new creation, you were born again, raised with Christ. You're no longer the same person. You're a totally different person now. So you put off the old and put on the new. Now, he talks about our ethical behavior. In other words, the outworking of this new nature that we possess. He says, no longer live like the old person that you used to be. Live now as the new person that you are. And he instructs us in things that are characteristic of the old way of living and the new way that we should live. He says to us, first of all, put off all falsehood. In other words, quit lying. Because it's contrary to your new nature. Don't lie anymore. Don't lie to yourself anymore. Don't lie to other people. And certainly don't lie to God. Start being a person who tells the truth. Start being a person who stands for the truth. Who speaks the truth. He says if you're a person who has been known for being angry and, and exhibiting any kind of unrighteous anger, don't do it anymore. Put off unrighteous anger. And if you must be angry, be angry at evil. Be angry at sin. Be angry at injustice. Exhibit a righteous anger. But even with that, don't let the sun go down on it. In other words, don't go to bed with it because even a righteous anger can sour and turn to bitterness and then it becomes unrighteous anger. He says, don't steal anymore, but rather work hard so that you have something to share with those who are in need. I read, or not read, I, I was listening to the radio this week, and it was very interesting. I was listening to a, a, a news commentator talking about a survey that had just been done, surveying a tremendous number of college-age people, young people, graduate school students, and so forth, about their attitude towards getting ahead financially, materially, uh, professionally, and so forth. And, you know, there's this, um, I don't know if you've read, you, you, you picked up articles and so forth, you've stumbled across them, uh, about the, the baby boom generation. You know what I'm talking about? And how there seems to be a trend in the baby boomers, all the younger people who are growing up now having families, to away from the me generation and towards, back towards traditional kinds of values and so forth. Well, this study, it belied all that. It, it just set it aside. And, and the researchers said that of all the, all the people they interviewed, all these, all these young, upcoming intellectual students, professional people, and so forth, 75 to 85% of them said they would lie, they would cheat, they would steal, 
they would do something unethical or illegal to get ahead. 75 to 85% of them. It's still with us. And so Paul says, don't steal anymore. Put that off. Why? Because it's not consistent with who you are. You're a brand new person. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only that which, what? Which builds up other people, encourages other people, edifies other people. Put a guard over your lips. Because unwholesome talk is talk that is, what? Part of the old nature. You're not that person anymore. Speak now like the person that you are. Put on the new person. He's told us that we should get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, every form of malice, the things that are so characteristic of the old way of life. And that we are now, instead of those things, we're to be, become pe kind people, compassionate people, forgiving people, remembering God's forgiveness for us. Now, in the midst of all of this, as he's instructed us in all these things, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he sums up everything he's been telling us. He sums it up with one great truth, one great concept. He says, be imitators of God. Be, literally, it's become imitators of God. Or even more literally than that, the Greek word imitator is uh, the same word we get the word mimic from. Become mimics of God. Ones who do exactly what he does. Become imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, or literally in our place, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now Paul sums everything he's been saying up in, in, in this phrase, become an imitator of God. And the reason he does it, I think, is this. When you focus only on the ethical standards, on the do's and the don'ts, we have a tendency in our humanness to slip back into Classic legalism. Now, do you remember our definition of legalism? If you don't remember it, write it down. It's always helpful to remind yourself. Legalism is this. Acceptance based on performance. In other words, I'm going to perform so that I can be acceptable. Now, the gospel says, the Bible says, that I'm already accepted in Christ. I don't perform to be accepted. I don't have to perform to be accepted. I obey God because I what? I love him. He's already accepted me. But if you focus on too long on the do's and don'ts, and this is why Paul, when he, he's got to set forth some ethical parameters, some ethical guidelines, some instruction. He's got to do that. But he doesn't dwell on it. He sets it forth, and then he comes back and he says, now listen, here's the bottom line. Become imitators of God. Become imitators of God. 
Now, who's he talking about? Who are we going to become imitators of? The Father. That's what he means. God the Father. As dearly loved what? Children. Children. Now, how can we imitate God? What does it mean to imitate God? Can we be omnipotent? Are we to imitate his omnipotence? His all-powerfulness? His omniscience? His all-knowingness? His omnipresence? No, we can't imitate him in those characteristics. But there are other characteristics, part of his nature, that we can imitate. Doesn't the Bible say, doesn't God speak to us and say, be holy because I am holy? Can we not also imitate him in his righteousness? Can we imitate him in his mercy? His compassion? Can we imitate him in terms of his justice? Can we imitate him in terms of his forgiveness? Sure. And while all of that is true, there is still yet one preeminent characteristic of the nature of God that I think Paul is directing us to, beyond all that we've just already said. Can you think of what that one preeminent characteristic is? His what? His love. His love. His love. We can imitate God in agape. That's the word. That's the word that the Bible uses to describe God's love, the love of God. That's true discipleship. When you begin to emulate, when you begin to imitate, when you begin to mimic God in agape love, you are then involved in true discipleship. Any discipleship that does not have as its preeminent goal and purpose Love is not discipleship. If you're in a discipling relationship, does love mark that relationship? Does love mark that relationship? Love given, love received. Is love preeminent? Agape love. That's what Paul's saying to us. Agape is imitation of God. Now, it's not a natural love. This is a supernatural love. It's not a love that you and I can engender. You can't manufacture it. You can't make it happen. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he's given to us. And that love is nurtured and nourished and continues by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's agape love. Beloved, we are most like God when we agape, when we love. We are most like God when we love. God loves us. Let's talk about this love. What is agape love? What is biblical love? How do you know it? How is it characterized? Is it a pleasant emotion? Is it a warm feeling towards somebody? Is that how we know? No, I don't think so. Agape love, biblical love, 
is not so much a pleasant emotion or a good feeling towards someone or about someone. It is rather the giving of oneself, literally the decision to give oneself to someone else for their, for their own welfare, for their well-being. Very simply, it's a decision. My wife will ask me periodically if I don't tell her. She'll say, do you love me? And I'll say, yes, I love you. How much do you love me? I love you this much. How much is this much? It's more than I loved you yesterday. And she'll say, oh, that's wonderful. And I say, yes. Yes, my darling. I said, this morning when I got up, I decided to love you. She hates that. But that's the way men are. Men decide to love. You gals caught on to that yet? You see, it's a decision. God made a decision to love. He made a decision to demonstrate that love by giving his son. It's not that God just swoons over us. It's not that he's just so enamored with our wonderfulness. He made a decision that he loves us. That's agape love. Agape love is unconditional. That means there's no strings attached to it. You know that? Agape love is, it depends entirely on the one who loves and not on the merit or the attractiveness or even the response of the one loved. Have you ever heard this? Maybe you've said it. I love you because... I love you because. That means there's a string attached. Does that mean if I, didn't, if I wasn't this or didn't do that, then you wouldn't love me anymore? I love you if. God doesn't say that. You know what God says? I love you. Period. We say that to other people. We say that to our, our loved ones. We say, I love you. Why do you love me? I just love you. But why? I just love you. But why? You see, everybody wants a reason. We're so used to earning love. We're so used to qualifying for it. God just says, no, I just love you. I just love you. God's love and all love that is like his loves for the sake of giving, not getting. You say, oh, that's just idealistic. You, no one can do that. Yes, they can. It's a struggle. Because we live still in this earth suit that still wants to get, wants to get, wants to get. And the spirit inside wants to give, wants to give, wants to give. As we grow and mature... The spirit wins out over the flesh. It's called growing up spiritually. Maturity. 
walking after the spirit, not after the flesh. When I do a wedding, part of my little spiel, if you will, <laughs> some of you who are married by me, you'll remember this. Part of my talk to you and to those who sit out in the congregation listening, as I describe Christian marriage, I say one of the factors, one of the, one of the characteristics of a Christian marriage is that you're, you're in a partnership now, but it's a very unique partnership in which you don't hold back from the other person. In fact, you, you live in such a way as to outgive the other person. You're not in that relationship to get, you're in the relationship to give. In order to ensure the fact that you give, outgive. Outgive. In other words, give more to that other person than they could ever hope to give back to you. And people nod, they say, oh, yes, mm -hmm. oh, yes, I agree, I agree, woo, yes. Uh huh. Preach it. But the truth of the matter about most relationships is that most people aren't giving. They're trading. Well, how do you know that? Well, you just have to observe for a little while, and then you see, you watch a relationship. And when one person pulls back, you watch the other person pull back. Well, if you're not going to give, I'm not going to give either. So there. True? They were never giving in the first place. They were always trading. They were always trading. That means, you know what? That means they don't love. Love always gives. We're most like God when we're loving, when we're agapeing, because we're giving. Because we're giving. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Any discussion of agape love, God include this passage. Very familiar to most of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes, he said, let me show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way. The last sentence of chapter 12. Now, the context of this discussion on love is spiritual gifting of the church. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth in the first century, it was a church that was rife with problems, misunderstandings, difficulties. And they, they were a church that was very gifted by God. And they sought and pursued and utilized spiritual gifts, but they found themselves falling into a trap of not doing so from a motivation of agape love. And whenever you minister, the motive has to be, I'm ministering out of love. I'm ministering to give. And sometimes we fall in the trap of ministering to get. Get recognition, get approval, look at me, aren't I great, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. And the, the love motivation is, is not there, quite frankly. And so Paul addresses that error in their practice, in their thinking, in their understanding, and he he just right smack in the middle of this discussion on spiritual gifts, he sinks this passage on love. I want you to read it with me. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. And there were a lot of people who were running around, and there still are today in the church. There's a whole bunch of people enamored with the, the, the least of all the gifts, tongues. He says, 
if I have this gift and if I can speak in tongues, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing but a noisemaker. I'm just flapping the air. I'm not talking to God. Nothing's happened. I'm just flapping the air. Then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and there's a lot of people running around today who want to be prophets and fancy themselves as prophets. So you know why? So they can tell off the church. There are prophets. They're not motivated by love. They're full of self-righteous, self-righteousness. But he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can uh, fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, these are better yet. If I have the gift of faith, if I can move mountains, if I can work miracles. There's a lot of people who want to have that. Show off. You look up to. He says, but if I don't have love, it ain't worth nothing. It ain't worth nothing. And then he says, if I give all I possess, I mean, if I give it all away, go to that extreme. Or even if I, if I die the death of a martyr, if I give my life, if I don't have love, if I don't have agape, my motivation isn't love. What a waste. Doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Love. Love is preeminent. Imitating God means that I love. That I love. And then he goes on and says this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It's not rude. There's a good one. My, some of us are rude. It's not self-seeking. Is not easily angered. There's another good one, isn't it? Keeps no record of wrongs. There's a good one. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Never fails. Isn't that beautiful? That's love. That's agape love. Here's a little exercise for you, by the way. You can do this at mini church or even sitting there. You can do this in your own quietness. Every time you see the word love or you see a reference to it in verses 4 through 8 there, remove the word love and put the Lord. The Lord is patient. The Lord is kind. The Lord does not envy and so forth. Then read through it, inserting his name. And then go through it a, se- a, a third time and take not the word love out, take the Lord out, put your name in there. That's a wonderful exercise. Zach is patient. <laughs> I'm already choking. <laughs> Can you say the next one? Zach is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast. Is not proud. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Can we read the rest of it? Do that. 
You see, because it'll be a barometer of does love mark your life? Is love the preeminent characteristic of your life? Agape love. Agape love. When did God love us, by the way? When, what was our condition? Did we get our act, was, was it when we got our act together? Some of you, you know, some of you are still laboring under this misconception that to receive communion, you've got to get your act all together first. You've got to be worthy to come to the communion table. No. When did God love you? He loved you when you were one, helpless. Two, you were a sinner. Three, you were his enemy. That's when he loved you. And if he loved you when you were at your worst, now that you're better. Don't you know that he still loves you? He loves you. He loves you as a dearly loved, as a beloved child, as much this very moment that he ever will in all eternity. He loves you even when you sin. Now, he doesn't like what you do. But he still loves you. He loves you when you fall short of his glory and perfection. He loves you even when you forget him. He loves you when you disobey him. He loves you when you deny him. He loves you even when you don't return his love. He loves you even when you grieve his Holy Spirit. Isn't that astounding? He loves you. He said, well, I already know that. I, I, I know that he loves me. But do you know that he loves you? Do you know that you are a dearly loved child of God? Do you know that you are beloved? Do you know that? You know, it's natural for children to emulate their parents. You see it all the time. You, you, if you want to really understand the parents, look at the child. Don't look too closely at my son, by the way. <laughs> you will. You'll know the family by watching the children. I love my son, and I want him to know my love. I don't want him just to say, I know my dad loves me. Because that's what I said about my dad. I knew my dad loved me, and he did his very best. But you know, I can never remember my dad initiating love, embracing, hugging, kissing me. I never remember that. When I became a Christian, I went after him. I said, come here. I said, stand up. He said, what do you want? I said, stand up. Get up here. And he squirmed, boy. And then when we pulled apart, we couldn't even look at each other because both of us were crying. But I do that with my son. Since he was a little baby, I knew, because I was a Christian before he was born, and I knew this, and I understood how, how important it was to know God's love. And I knew how important it was for me to know my father's love, which I never really knew. And I wanted my son to know my love for him. And so I bonded with him right at birth. And I hugged him and touched him and rubbed him and kissed him. And I've done it every single day of his life. He's nearly 10 years old. No one ever did that to my dad. 
And my dad didn't know how to do that. And I never got it. But I'm determined to break that cycle in my family. I'm determined that my son know how much I love him. And I want to know his love for me just like that. It's real funny. A couple weeks ago, Michael was out on the soccer field. They were just getting ready to kick the ball, you know. I ran out on the field. <laughs> he said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I just want to come out here and tell you I love you. I'm proud. He said, thanks, Dad. I said, now give me a kiss. He said, oh, Dad. <laughs> but he did. We kissed right on the mouth. A wet one. We kiss every day. We kiss every night. I stroke his arm, rub his head. I hug him. He still sits in my lap. Ten years old, he sits in my lap and we kiss squeeze. I want him to know my love. I want him to know that he is beloved, that he's cherished. Do you know that? Do you know that God loves you? Or do you just know up here that God loves you? Oh, I know my dad loves me. Or do you know the intimacy and the precious, precious love of God? You know, we have God's nature. When we were born again, God gave us his nature. And it is God's nature to love. And so because we have his nature, it is now our nature to love. And whenever we don't love, we're going against our nature. As well as obviously against God's nature. For the Christian not to love is to find himself in a place of, of great discomfort because he's going against his or her nature. Jesus talks to us in John in chapter 13, verse 34. Let me read this to you. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so that you, you must love one another. Does the world look on the church and say, my, my, how they love one another? Or does the world look on the church and say, oh boy, what a joke? Which is true. See, most of you are nodding to the latter. Now, we're going to get persecution because we're Christians. And that's what we should be persecuted for, but not for our own stupidity and foolishness. And that's what we're being persecuted for. We're being persecuted for our unrighteousness. As rightly we should be. That's a shame. How do you feel? What happens? What elic what's elicited in you when you observe a saint, a member of the church, who really takes all this seriously? And who really begins to pour out his or her life in love, ministering, for other people's benefit at their own discomfort. You stand off at a distance, you observe that person's life, and you say, my, 
Isn't that beautiful? Awesome. How do they do it? I wish I could do that. You can. If you would. It just takes a decision. Everything's in place. It's already there. The love is already there. God's already put his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. But it just takes a decision. You've got this line in front of you. It's called a decision line. And all it takes is, is you've got to step over it. Say, okay, that's it. I've made my decision. That's it. There's no turning back. I'm going to pour my life out for others. I'm going to give my life away. Because I love God. Because I love God. Because I love God, I love Victor. Yes, I do. Because <laughs> I love God, I love Bert. Because I love God, I love Maria. Do you love God? Amen. How are you living your life? Are we loving one another? Does the world look on the church and say, oh my, how they love one another. What's the world hungering for? The world is hungering for what? Acceptance, love, value, purpose, meaning. Where is it to be found? This is the only place. This is the only place. So why love has to be the preeminent characteristic of our life. If we're going to imitate God, though we imitate every other thing, it's all going to be wound up. It's all going to find its end point in love. Matthew records Jesus as saying, he's, he's in an interview with a, a young lawyer, and the young lawyer comes and says to him, Teacher, what is the great commandment? What's the greatest of all the commandments? What was Jesus' response? You should love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. You should agape the, love, the Lord your God. But Jesus doesn't stop there because there's a second one and the second one and the first one are bound together inseparably. He says, if you love God this way, you also love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, bound up in those two commandments, hung on those two commandments, are all the law and the prophets. Everything. It's love. Jesus simplifies it for us. Make the decision to receive God's love and to love him back. And not only are we to love our, our neighbors and our friends, people like us, we're to love our enemies. Over in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, over in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says quite frankly, don't just love those who love you. Love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you. He said, don't even the tax gatherers, don't even the sinners, the pagans, love those who love them? So what's the big deal? You love those who hate you. You love those who persecute you. So when we talk about love, yes, God loves us. And we return that love by loving Him. We love each other. Our heart is filled up and out of the overflow comes that love for each other. But it's not limited just to each other, just to nice people. But even to the unlovely, 
those who are antagonistic towards us. That doesn't mean you have to agree with what they say or what they do. You love the person. And you let that love penetrate past their behavior, past their lifestyle, past what's abhorrent to you. You let that love penetrate into that person's heart because into the deepest recesses of their need. And you love them. You love them. And out of that love comes ministry, comes healing. Do you know that you're dearly loved? And if you know you're dearly loved, what is your response then to God's love for you? What's your response? It's all wrapped up in one word. It begins with O. O-B. O-B-E-D. Obedience. You know how you love God? You obey Him. You obey Him. You say, God, I love you so much. I'm going to do what you want. I love you so much, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I want to serve you. I want to do the things that you want me to do. Do you love God? You know how you know? You do what He wants. Not because you have to. Because you want to. He's the love of your life. He's the most precious person to you. More precious than your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your child, your son, your daughter. Your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Because you have begun to comprehend his incomprehensible love, nearly his incomprehensible love. Your response is such that you say, God, incredible. How can I not do what you want? How many people have ever been in love? Ah, isn't that nice? Isn't it nice to be in love? When you're really in love with somebody, how do you treat them? Do you offend their love? Do you violate their love? No. No, you, you, just, you, just, you just love them. You can't do enough for them. You're all over them. You're phoning them, writing them letters, sending them flowers. My wife sends me flowers. They're lovely. She gets me Rocky Road. My wife loves me. And I can't help but love her back. And to do those things that bless her life. And when I don't do them, Yucky. (laughs) 
To live a life of love, as Paul says, beloved, is to respond to God's love. And such a life is a pleasing aroma to God. Is your life and how you live it a pleasing aroma or is it a stinking garbage heap? Get the drift? Imitate God. Become an imitator of God. Become a mimic of God. Love. Love. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Let's pray.